Welcome, Pioneers, to episode 15 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? Today, we're going to jump right into um, kind of a deal that I'm working with right now. Uh, I've recently sold a commercial property that I was going to put into a 1031 exchange. Due to a lot of lot of factors that fell apart, some mistakes on my own, some things I couldn't control, and the whole story really fits into the the current competency crisis we're dealing with. So, before we get into the ten, how the ten thirty one fell apart, I'm going to go back to the beginning of the whole sale and transaction. And for those who don't know, a ten thirty one exchange is when you sell a commercial property. Instead of taking capital, paying capital gains taxes on it, if you buy another commercial property within six months, you can avoid the capital. You can put the whole sale and capital gains into the new property and not pay any capital gains. You basically defer it until the final sale. And what that six months thing is misleading. You have to identify a property within 45 days. You have to structure the sale of the property specifically. And some of that I messed up. It, Pretty costly mistake, but in hindsight, I think the mistake was unavoidable due to some other factors. So let me get to the beginning of this. Uh, about eight months ago, uh, we have a my wife and I had a commercial property that was attached to our IRL business from years past, and we found a buyer for it. the The buyer was actually a renter; they were renting it for a couple of years, trying to get their finances in order to buy it. And due to COVID and the lockdowns and things like that, they had to wait. Till we were far enough past the lockdowns that they could get their financials in order. And before you ask, why don't we just sell it to somebody else? The thing about a commercial property is they tend to be special use. And in our case, it was extremely special use uh, property. So you couldn't just sell it to a developer or to somebody, some random business. It had to be somebody in the industry that the property was designed to. So the buyers who had been renting from us were perfectly suited for it. And to find a replacement for them would have been damn near impossible. So we started this process eight months ago and one bit of banking incompetency after another held this, this sale up for eight months. Uh, Like for one example, they had, they took out a PPP loan during the lockdowns and because it's a government loan that was going to be forgiven, uh, they were just waiting for it to be forgiven. Well, their financials got held up because it was showing the debt on their books, and it was an outstanding debt showing on their, their credit score and whatnot. And when they told the bankers, well, hey, it's a PPP loan. The government's going to forgive it. They said, oh, we know that, but it's still a negative on your credit report. So we, you know, until it's settled, we can't move forward. So then they call the uh, whatever agency issued the PPP loans, and they offered to just pay it off themselves so they could move forward. You can't pay it off. It's a government loan. It's going to be paid off. So there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to wait. And they essentially managed to to badger them for two months and get it paid off on there you know, a little bit earlier. But the whole situation, I mean, we, we held up a, a financial deal for two months over a government loan that was forgiven by the government. And all parties involved knew it was going to be forgiven, but they didn't have the capability at the bank to move forward. I mean, I got, I got no explanation for that uh, kind of incompetence. Uh <laughs> so many funny things about that. <laughs> and I, I mean, on one hand, I feel bad for you know your pain and suffering, but on the other hand, it just doesn't surprise me one bit that uh, that the the buyer wanted to pay off their own PPP loans, wanted to make the government whole on those loans, and the government wouldn't let them. <laughs> not only wouldn't let them, but was like, "Hey, we're not going to let you, and we're going to keep this on your your credit report." For as long as we feel is necessary until we finally get around to paying it off. And that was just one of the issues. The The thing about com- uh, commercial lenders, I don't understand this. When you start the process, you ask them, what are all the forms I need to fill out? And they'll give you f- some forms. You fill them out, you turn them in, and they go, okay, now here's this form. Fill it out. Okay, you fill it out, you turn it in. It gets processed. It gets kicked back, whatever. Then there's another one. Then there's another one. And it's, you keep asking is this the final piece of paperwork? Can we, do you have more? I'll fill them all out right now. They won't do it. They have to handle one thing at a time and they handle it poorly and slowly every single time. And then enough time goes by that you have to start redoing the paperwork because it's been like four months and now they need up, they need another PL statement. They need new things. And it's a new, it's a panic every time because they're like, well, we don't understand why things change. It's a new month. 
things change month to month. And they, every month it's the same new panic. And it, we had to do an environmental report because, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, this property had um, some kind of industrial, it was an industrial property before it got rolled over to commercial, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. So they wanted an environmental report to make to see if nothing happened. Well, we, when we bought it, my wife and I bought it, we had an environmental report done and it was fine. So we turned that one in when this process started. They go, no, we need a new environmental report. Like, well, what happened in the 1970s hasn't changed. It still happened in the 70s. You're not concerned with what's happened in the last five years. You're concerned with the 1970s. Why do you need a new report? And of course, we they don't have an answer. You just do a new report. And then you get to the end of this eight-month process. And because it's been eight months, they want another one. All with the same time frame in mind. I don't know how you can be a functioning triple-digit IQ adult in this process and see this as acceptable. I'm just shuddering. I'm just shuddering while my mic is muted, <laughs> so you couldn't hear it. But uh, I mean, I had an initial thought on the first one. Uh, so as a lender, if you're if you're lending against a property, you're very sensitive to conflicts of interest of the service service providers. So um, if you're taking the risk on a property, you want to hire the service provider who's doing the due diligence on it um, to make sure that nothing's overlooked. Uh, and so I get the first one. Um, it's just, it is what it is in lending. Um, uh, frustrating, but, uh, the second one is what kind of surprised me. <laughs> so that was obviously just a checkbox that got, uh, that timed out. And so then you have to pay for another one, but brutal. So what, um, what was in the process that you thought was under your control that, that you could have done differently? You know, I've been thinking about that for the last eight months and none of it, uh, other than looking for a new buyer, there was nothing in my control. That was, that's the thing because the buyers were the one who had to buy the property. They were the ones who had to get their financials in order and get a lender. And they actually went through three lenders to, to get this started. Um, all of which were doing SBA loans, the same SBA loan, but they had to go to three different banks to find one who could make this work through the SBA and, and whatnot. Other than doing like we could have tried to do some kind of seller carry on our end, except I really, I wanted my money up front so I can move on to my next uh, real estate deal, which we'll get to in a few minutes at the end of the story. So I, my desire to have all my money up front limited the buyer's options to getting full funding. So maybe I could have done something differently there, but then, then I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have had cash up front. So that's not, um, I don't know if that's one I really could have gone down that path with, but outside of that, I mean, we were just waiting for them to fill out paperwork. And th those were the real options, uh, seller financing or find a new buyer. And that yeah, was and, a good one. Yeah. And particularly with seller financing, you can really paint yourself into a corner because the the characteristics of the transaction. So when the property actually changes hands, determine its eligibility for uh, an SBA loan. So if you provided seller financing, you may preclude that buyer from eventually getting an SBA loan to take you out as a seller financer. So you'd be committed for quite a while uh, and you could really paint yourself into a corner. So <laughs> good thing you didn't do that. Um, and yeah, seller financing, a lot of times really great for the buyers, but uh, it takes a particular situation for the seller for it to make sense for them. And a lot of times it just isn't, doesn't fit the bill. So anyway, yeah, um, good thing you didn't, uh, yeah, even though it was really painful, good thing you didn't end up putting yourself in a situation where, um, but at the start of the podcast, it sounded like you said that you had, there were some other things that you, that you regretted doing or, or wanted to do differently. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I was going with that, but it also sounded like you. Yeah. A couple things. The, the regrets are further in the story. So I'll get to that. Um, the, just a quick tangent on the seller financing thing. It seems to me that it, the, when the seller financing works best is when the two of you are in the same town, uh, not just same state, but same town, the sellers nearby and they're older and looking for kind of an income stream versus a lump sum of cash. Like you're, you're uh, most of the seller financing I've seen has come from boomers who are retiring because they don't necessarily need a lump sum of cash. They just need a steady stream of uh, money coming in and the seller financing leaves them kind of tied to the business, which gives them something to do day to day until it's, the debt's paid off. Because, you know, boomers, the, the, the things that kill them is lack of money and lack of something to do. They get bored and just die. So seller financing really works 
in that scenario because they're not bored and they have a consistent stream of money, which is their two fears. Uh, so that's my my little bit about uh, seller financing. So, yeah, back to the, the rest of the story now. So I'm not going to get into every single hiccup. There were eight months worth of them, but right down to the last day, the, the day we were going to sell got postponed by another month in three-day increments because it's like, hey, we're going to close on Monday. Monday comes around and it's like, oh, wait, wait, there's a problem with the environmental report again. And it literally, and it was uh, the, the neighbor's property. had a, They wanted to know something about the neighbor's property. It's like, oh, that's the neighbor's. It's not our property. It's Nobody owns it in this transaction. You have no right to be concerned. So you had to tell them to, to piss off. That took a, a week to settle. And then it's like, we're going to do it on, on uh, Tuesday. And then there's another problem. And for, for a month, it got delayed in two and three day increments. During this whole eight month, eight month process, I had reached out to a, uh, a farm farmer in my, my town and said, Hey, I want a couple of them. I said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to buy your property. I'm selling this commercial property. I want to do a 1031 exchange. Would you be willing to sell to me? I reached out to four different farmers. Uh, one of them reached back was like, yeah, I'll sell you that property. I'm like, cool. Well, I just got to wait on this transaction. Should be done in a month. Well, that was when the process was starting. So then another month goes by and I call them. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, we got delayed. Every month I'm calling them to the point where I'm like, you know, how long can I keep kicking this can down the road? Well, he he decided he was, uh, now that he got in his head to sell this property, he wound up selling it to somebody who had cash on hand. I can't blame him for that. I was an unreliable buyer. You know, I, how many times can somebody tell you next month I'm going to buy your property and then eight months go by every single time he's telling you next month will be the month I buy it before you just say, yeah, screw it. I'll sell it to this guy who has cash, which is exactly what happened. I don't blame him for that. Sucks for me. But so that happened, right? So we finally close and I was so frazzled at this point. I didn't think to mention about the, to, to the 1031 exchange. Now, and this is where I screwed up and my regret because the other property was already sold. Couldn't do a 1031 into that one. And I didn't understand that once you close the deal and you get money in hand, you've lost the ability to do a 1031. When you sell, you have to tell the title agency right then and there, this is going to be a 1031 exchange so that they can hold the money off to the side in, in some kind of escrow. Because once the money hits your account, you're done. You have capital gains. There's no 1031. There's no backdating it. There's no amendment. Um, just a, another tangent. There are companies that will do and structure the 1031 exchange for you. If you've never done a 1031 exchange, you might want to use one of these companies because whatever they're charging you to broker this deal that may or may not be simple, it's going to be far less than you're going to pay in the capital gains taxes if you screw it up. So maybe for the first 1031 you ever do, you consider using one of these companies. I certainly would have been better off. This was a roughly $20,000 mistake I made. I mean, ouch. That's $20,000 because I just got frazzled and complacent and did not think this deal was going to happen. And when it finally happened, I was just like, sign the paperwork, get it done. I don't want to give them a chance to screw it up again. So my, my complacency, my, I guess, laziness, that cost me a lot of money. However, yeah, however, hindsight being what it is, I didn't know that I was going to find another property afterwards. So I probably would have made this mistake no matter what. After we sold the property, about three weeks later, a farm went for sale in our town and we made an offer that, uh, and we're, we're working it now. This could have been a 1031 exchange, but I didn't know when we closed that I would find this property. It would have fallen within that 45 day window, but it's still, I think, you know, hindsight being what it is, I don't think I would have made the right decision on this. I think I would have screwed it up no matter what, just because of my mental state at the time, how I allowed myself to get uh, frustrated and complacent with the situation of eight months of kicking this can down the road. I think I allowed that to happen to myself. And I don't think, I don't think anything I looking back on it, I don't think there's any point where I would have made the right decision. I think I just, the lesson there is, don't let these these competency crises take you away from from the details of every deal. Don't get complacent in the deal. Don't get in such a hurry to sign the paperwork that you you screw up and don't set things up properly because that's that's exactly what I did. 
man, especially when you have so many other things going on, right? You only have so much attention and, and, um, willpower and <laughs> that you can devote to every task during the day. And if you've got several other things going on, like a Wi-Fi business, and you're just trying to handle this transaction in the background, really easy to lose track of exactly where that is and what the, what, what the critical deal aspects are. But, um, well, at least it was, you know, in this case, a relatively, relatively small amount. It wasn't, it wasn't devastating. Um, but, uh, I'm still thinking about the 1031 facilitators. Yeah. Government is, is great at creating jobs for people handling your interactions with the government. <laughs> it's pure economic waste, but it is what it is. Um, I wonder, I'm still thinking about, uh, um, if, if somebody is new to 1031s, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's probably well worth having somebody hold your hand through the first one just to make sure nothing, nothing gets lost because that's, that's money lost forever. Um, are there, uh, are there ways, do you have like a, a shorthand cheat sheet for getting through a 1031 if somebody didn't want to use a service provider? I don't because I still have not done a 1031 exchange. I mean, that's, that's the short of it is this would have been my first 1031 exchange. And because I screwed it up, I still don't have the experience of actually completing it. Um, we did close the deal with just the escrow and title companies. We didn't use a, um, because the, the people had been renting from us, this is at least one thing we did, right? We, because they had been renting us from us for years and we knew they were going to be the buyer. We didn't need to use any kind of broker or commercial real estate broker for the deal. We just went right to the title company and signed it over. So the closing costs were, you know, like 1500 bucks for a, um, very large, uh, deal. Like, you know, we would have paid easily 15 to $20,000 in, uh, uh, commission fees had we used a broker. So we did get that part of it right. But because we had no experience with the 1031 where I went wrong is I thought that because it was a, you know, avoiding capital gains tax, I thought this would be something a CPA handled. And it'd be CPA paperwork with your taxes. So I kept, you know, telling my, my CPA, like, hey, my, my accountant, hey, we're going to do this. And she just kept sending me the, like these, these data sheets and, and kind of generic websites on the rules. And I just, it didn't click that she didn't, the reason she didn't know a lot about it is because it wasn't her job. It's not something CPAs do um, unless that's a side job for them. They don't facilitate that end of a deal. They don't do have anything to do with a real estate uh, transaction. They just put the numbers on a spreadsheet and, and figure out taxes owed so it didn't like it didn't click that the reason she wasn't giving me answers was because it wasn't her job um so that's the thing if you think you're going to rely on your cpa for this you're not that's not their job it's not their part of the transaction um if you're using a realtor they should know more about it and if they can't give you a a solid answer as to what's going on and who to talk to that's when you need to start googling these these companies that do the 1031 exchange for you structure the deal for you i would say if you're, you know, if you're pretty savvy or, or just even halfway smart, if you pay them to do it one time, you can probably do it on your own the next time. You'll probably know all the steps. But yeah, the first time around, just pay them. It's a lot cheaper than making a twenty or greater twenty thousand dollar mistake. Yeah. So that that paying them the one time and then doing it yourself the second third time around that's been my strategy so far for dealing with brokers especially. And every time I've been like, wait, that's what you get paid for. As what, after I go through the exercise, I'm like, wait a second, you didn't do anything. You didn't take any risk. You didn't actually really market the property. Um, you didn't facilitate the like deal structuring. Um, you didn't do any of the additional service providers, like, like what you were just talking about there where the, you might ask the broker about the 1031 and hopefully they know uh, about it. In my experience, the, all the commercial broker does is, is say, oh, well, you know, we should ask so-and-so about that. And I'm like, hey, man, what, what value are you bringing here? Uh, it's just, <laughs> I guess the silver lining in this case is it really made the case to you how uh, cheap you can actually transact real estate if you just cut out the brokers. Uh, most of the other service providers are pretty reasonably priced, it seemed like in this case at least. Um, and I, and in one of the transactions I'm doing right now, it's very much the same. Like I was just talking with the real estate attorney and, uh, we were going through his fees and I was like, how much, you know, can I expect this to cost? And he's like, maybe five grand. And I was like, seriously, we're going to pay the broker a million dollars and your, and your fee is five grand. And you're the one taking all the legal risk and all of, 
and doing all of the thorough vetting on all of the transaction details to make sure we don't end up, you know, upside down in something. And the broker who literally just answers phone calls sometimes and then, and then says, and then just relays facts to me and it ends up getting in the way and misquoting facts ends up walking away with a million dollars. What in the hell is going on? <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it looks like, at least in this case, you know, you had a, you had an industry specific buyer, so it was probably easier for you to source. Um, but generally speaking, I wouldn't be surprised if more and more deals end up going this way in the future, especially as software and, and social media ends up enabling people to market their own properties a lot better. Well, just look at how the game changed real estate when uh, DocuSign became a thing and became a legal document. Um, you know, you don't have to physically sign anything until you actually close on the deal and are sitting there with the title agency. All these contracts are made through DocuSign, and I'm still floored by the fact that that's acceptable because I can hand my phone to my wife and she can DocuSign everything for me. Like it, the fact that that's normalized now, it tells you where this is going. Um, now I wonder what's going to happen when these things start getting challenged in court, where somebody tries to back out of a deal and they're like, "That's not my email. I didn't do that. They they faked the whole thing." I wonder how that's going to what the legal ramifications will be. But at the moment it's making the job of everybody so much easier now that it's like you said, you're going to have, um, you're going to have Wi-Fi lawyers and real estate brokers who just draw contracts for you and you purchase the contracts from them because they will be proven contracts that you can now use to your own will. Uh, I, I know that already exists to some degree, but that's going to become the norm real soon. Yeah. I, our, our attorneys still prefer to look over everything, even if it's been auto-generated and even if it's a, uh, you know, a really basic transaction. Um, but I also just thought of one other thing, which is, and maybe, yeah, maybe that's them just defending their turf, right? Uh, maybe they, maybe deep down they know they aren't really adding any value, but they don't want me getting in the habit of, of doing my own legal work. Um, but the other thing I, I just thought of is, uh, you know, those signatures where you don't even have to go through DocuSign, you can just do this slash S and then your name. And, um, and it's like, it's valid as an e-signature. You do that sometimes with like government websites that need you to sign something. What blows my mind is that is also a signature because somebody could just, somebody could just, you could easily change that, right? Like they didn't even have to log into anything to be able to make that signature. Anyway, um, that's, I guess, for another time. Go ahead. I think the military actually got this one right. The way you sign everything in the military now is you have your military ID card and has a chip inside of it. and a pin number to your chip. So theoretically, I mean, you could give your card to somebody and give them your pin number and they'll go sign all your stuff for you. That can happen. But essentially somebody can't just take your card without your permission and sign stuff for you. There's no other way to digitally sign it. And there's a, there's a verification that goes with the digital signature that says it came from your, your uh, ID card. I don't actually see, well, I, I, I do see where that could go wrong in the civilian world uh, on control end, but from a, e-signature verification point where you could just plug in your driver's license and it has the same unique chip and ID number. I could see things going that way for verification of e-signatures to make it a little more stable because it's a whole lot harder to, to um, replicate that or forge that. So that might be something that comes in the future where you just buy a uh, certified I- digital ID card that you can and, sign with and how the Bitcoin guys might know something about this too. Maybe you can actually blockchain this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if those words even made sense, but somewhere something's going to come where something's going to come with better e-signature e, e verification than the current slash S tiger name. Something's coming. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think the other point um, that's worth point, uh, mentioning about your, your circumstances that it just really, really uh, illustrates how the last few inches of any deal are actually miles, <laughs> especially when banks or government are involved. Um, and uh, another reason why I encourage people as much as possible to find alternate lenders, alternative lenders, that space can be very difficult to navigate because there's just a lot of shady people in it, but um, you have a lot, they have a lot more principal control over the transaction and less, and less check boxes that they just have to, fill for no, no good reason at all. Like, you know, your environmental aged out eight months. And so you have to get a new one. Ridiculous. Um, and, uh, especially for, you know, a situation where the, the key event under consideration was decades ago. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, in deals, it's almost like whatever your forecast is for the deal closing, um, it's going to be two to four times that long, whatever your current forecast is. So if you think it's a month away, it's four months away. If you think it's two weeks away, it's 
eight weeks away. If you think it's four days away, it's 16 days away. <laughs> oh, that is 100% true. And like Taleb wrote about that in one of his books. Um, they, they all kind of blend together. The lessons of the books kind of blend in. But he did point out the fact that at least on the commercial and more and more on the residential side too, but on the commercial and government side, when was the last time any project came in on time and on budget? Forget early and under budget, just on time and on budget. I mean, probably not in my lifetime, probably not in the last 40 years, if ever. But even nowadays, when you see residential uh, construction happening, never on time, never on budget. So it's, it's really easy for that to happen, even if almost everybody is doing their job. So I have this particular situation right now where we probably have 10 parties involved in this particular stage of my company. And, uh, and just one of the companies, just the engineers, um, you know, the outsourced engineers are just slow in getting their work done partially because they hate their jobs, but, uh, also they just, they just operate on different timelines and they have no sense of urgency and they have no reason to hurry. And so when they tell us that a report is coming in two weeks, what it really means is two months. And then when we get to those two months, they won't even mention it. We have to bring it up. And, and then they're like, oh, it's going to be another two weeks. Oh, really? So it was the same thing as when you were talking about every three days, it got extended and that ended up going for a month. Um, and just because of that, it's drastically increasing the workload that we have to keep everything else on track. So now it's like, I don't know, two or four times as much work for me to coordinate all of the, all of the other workflows that, that have to um, stay in lockstep with this because this one group just won't get the work done in time. So that's a situation where just one out of 10 groups is completely blowing it up for everybody. And we just have to deal with it. I, I just don't see a way around that when, you know, 80% of people now are just not even reliable or can't even function in their job. Well, and then add to that, like everything's happening in the supply chain um, issues. Like we're, we're not out of the woods with the supply chain stuff. Now we've just become numb to it, but you know, all you need is one railroad railroad strike and now the the lumber from the mill didn't get to the the store for the construction workers to pick up, so it had to be driven by a truck. Well, that makes the price go up. So now, um, not only was the lumber delayed getting to the job site, but it cost twice as much because they couldn't ship it by uh, rail; they had to ship it by truck. Or you have a trucker strike, or you have diesel prices go up, or I mean, it just or 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 all this stuff uh, piles up, and there's so many factors in what just building a house or uh, constructing a, a building, there's so many factors going into it. You can't control for all of them. I don't know how you can possibly get around this other than to just uh, assume that those just always assume the numbers are wrong at this point. I don't know how you can accurately estimate it. I don't know. Yeah. Especially when everybody has the option to make an excuse now, right? Like if you, if you blow it on your end, there's X number of excuses you can draw that aren't your fault, quote unquote. Right. So I just, I just have no idea how you fix that problem right now. It's probably just one of those end of an empire things. It all has to fall apart and then reform around people who actually get things done. I don't know. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is, uh, along those lines is, um, uh, I can't even find emails anymore. It's ridiculous. Like, uh, um, on my Gmail account, uh, finding basic emails is incredibly hard. Like Gmail search function now is as bad as Outlook was a few years ago. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, what other basic functionalities are failing that that we need to be anticipating? Well, okay. So right before this uh, podcast started, I was trying to make some sound adjustments to my microphone and my headphones. So I click on the little speaker and microphone icon in the bottom right corner. They don't give me the settings I'm looking for. So I type in uh, sound, and it doesn't bring me to the system sound setting. I had to physically go to the settings, system, sound. There was no... Uh, search function that was getting me there using any of the words involved, microphone, anything. So I had to go there physically to make the changes. And if you, I think we've, we've talked about this before in one of the earlier episodes, but like take Microsoft uh, windows, they don't change the base code. They just patch and patch and patch because somebody makes software that's not compatible. So they have to patch it to, you know, user software, SaaS software, whatever, but they keep, patching it to make it fit with faster computers and more demanding graphics and, and on and on. But at the base, all the way from back to, to Windows 95, they just keep patching and patching. And that's why the, every time they make an upgrade, it you know it's a disaster for a few years. Um, 
you know, remember Windows Vista, the nightmare that was with that? Uh, people just kept rolling it back to the previous version for like a year before they fixed all the bugs in it. And it's because they never go from the beginning and write new code to fit what's going on. That's too expensive. So they just keep putting putting duct tape on it. Well, you know, how long can you keep a used car going, replacing one part at a time before the frame rusts out and the body falls apart and it just, you know, is no longer able to function. And that's what's going on with all of our software and infrastructure is we haven't built anything from the ground up in so long that it's got to fail at some point and everything's failing together. I don't know if that's um, just an inevitability or if that's just bad luck on our end, but everything's coming apart at the same time. Do you think it's competency crisis? Do you think it's, um, uh, do you think it's us being under cyber attack or do you think it's like uh, the government wants it this way or maybe all three? Um, Just curious there. Uh, first two, for sure. It's competency crisis meets cyber attack. Government wanting it this way, uh, at this point, I don't know they have the competency to get what they want. Um, but when you have a system that's this fragile, all you need is somebody poking holes in it. And cyber attack could be anything. It could be some 14-year-old autistic genius who's just got an internet connection and is bored. It could be, you know, Chinese hackers, Russian hackers. It could be anything. It could be some kind of ransomware um, it could be all the above happening independently or one, you know, let, let your imagination run wild with the conspiracies, but it could be any or all the above. But when you have a system that's this weak, all you have to do is just put a little pressure against it and things fall apart. Um, that's what we're seeing with our power stations. That's probably what we're seeing with the oil rigs that are burning up. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't know what cyber would have to do with the railways, but the railway infrastructure is a hundred years old, hundred and you know, whatever years old. It just hasn't been updated. They haven't put new rail line down. They haven't, uh, you know, they haven't upgraded the track at all. So all all these things are just bound to fall apart. And if you put any pressure on it, it's going to give. So we don't have the competency to build it up from scratch. We barely have the competency to keep it going. All the engineers that are capable of repairing this, whether they're uh, cyber engineers or physical engineers, mechanical engineers, they're all boomers and they're all retiring. Gen Z and millennials don't want anything to do with this industry at a massive uh, level, uh, at a you know level that's big enough to fix it. So now we don't have people to fix the decaying problem, nobody to build it, and a couple of assholes with a computer just poking holes at it, watching it fall apart and laughing. That's all it takes. So I just had something kind of different happen um, this week. Uh, my wife's Google Ads got shut off because of "quote unquote" suspicious activity. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, I'm going to be hearing a lot more of that uh, in in the times to come. But do you think that's a functionality failure, or do you think we're getting censored uh, just for our internet traffic or something? I the internet traffic could be a thing, and when social credit scores roll out, that'll probably be a more likely thing. But before I embrace the conspiracy theory of Google's hurting us for our Google searches, um, if you look at TikTok, it, like it's what they banned this week is about what the outrage is last week. So you got TikTok. It's filled with OnlyFans and porn, basically. You got women making all kinds of videos that are advertising their OnlyFans accounts and porn. And, I mean, they'll get 100,000, million, 10 million views and not get pulled. But then you'll have, um, you know, somebody, some dude will post a video where he takes a shirt off and cuts a block of firewood and he gets banned and suspended. You're like, there's no rhyme or reason to this whatsoever. Um, and you can daydream about conspiracies all day long, but I really think it just comes, comes down to what are people complaining about today is what they are banning tomorrow and spots, you know, that the, there's not a, the, the soft, there's a human being who will look at your appeal and restore your account, but it's a bot that looks at your account and bans it. So it's just looking for keywords, key phrases, key whatever is in the, the program. And they're programming one set of things based off of what the outrage of the day is. I think that's what the majority of these account suspensions are. Then uh, when they're not restored, that's when you have some shit lib on the other side of the computer who's looking at your account history going, now nah, you say the wrong things, you're going to stay banned. But I don't think that's what it is on the front end of it. I could be wrong, but I really do think it's just yesterday's outrage is today's uh, account suspension. Even just on like a Google ads, I mean, it's a really basic, straightforward ad. It's There is nothing controversial about it. Uh, so I, it was just really threw me off. And I was like, man, are we 
this is really strange. Are we on some list somewhere? We've had Facebook ads, TikTok ads, and other Google ads that were rejected. And you couldn't get an explanation as to why. Um, they just, we had to appeal them. I mean, it happens. It, if it doesn't become a systemic problem, I would just put it off as a one-off bad luck. But if you're talking every week, you're getting a suspension or getting a, your your ads blocked, then there's something fishy going on. But this type of stuff, random stuff does happen all the time. It happens to my wife and I all the time, at least once a week. Not all, not always on the same platform, not always the same advertisement, but we'll take advertisements we've used in the past and recycle them and they get, they get denied. And you're like, I've used this five times in a year. Why, why is it getting denied now? So, you know, the algorithms are not perfect and they, you're trying to uh, put some kind of actual logic to it and your whatever mechanism you're using to, to, to figure out that logic is always going to be wrong. Yeah. Uh, speaking of conspiracy theories, um, I, I think I mentioned my, my new favorite uh, conspiracy theories, NPC uh, despawns. And uh, for anybody not, not familiar, NPC, obviously, non-player character comes from the video game world where the, the video game will generate characters for the, for the main person to interact with, but those characters aren't sentient beings or anything. Um, but in the real world, <laughs> there's this idea that uh, beyond the memes about NPCs, that there are legit NPCs out there who have just been auto-generated. <laughs> by whatever simulation we're in. And that as you pan away from, uh, as, as the main character screen pans away from wherever that NPC is, they, they start to count down and then they despawn. <laughs> and, uh, as I mentioned it to a few people, they, they swore that they saw it happen. Like they were driving, you know, down, down the road at night and saw somebody walking and it was really bizarre and they were a total NPC. And then, um, uh, person telling the story turned around, you know, 10 seconds later and the, and the person walking down the street was gone and there was nowhere for them to go. They just despawned, evaporated into the, the simulation somewhere. <laughs> what do you think of that? Okay. I could easily just go on about that's confirmation of, of sim theory. I'm not a proponent of simulation theory, but I like to play with the idea. But consider this. There's a not insignificant percentage of women, greater, greater than 50% of women, when they're confronted with a man who is they find physically unattractive or repulsive, they'll just delete him from memory. He's invisible. He's literally invisible to them. Like they may have to buy coffee or whatever and deal with him at the counter. But as soon as they turn around, he is gone from their mind. He doesn't exist. If they had to tell, give a description, a sketch artist, even say what, what was behind the counter, they couldn't even tell you because it disappears from their brain. What if that's going to happen now? What if NPC despawn is just everybody now, man and woman alike, when you see people who you just don't register as productive human being. You just delete them from your brain because you say, I need hardware space in my brain and you're, you don't qualify for hard drive space. So we're just going to kick you out. And, and that's literally what you're seeing with NPC despawn is you just see human and non-human and the non-humans get deleted from your brain. Yeah. I mean, it could be one of these things where, you know, we talked about this theme before where even if something is not technically true or true in the world of physics, it's effectively true. So that um, one of the examples is uh, how we talk about brain chips, right? That we're going to implant brain chips and we're all just going to be cyborgs. But people have already effectively implanted, you know, uh, figurative brain chips by being glued to their smartphones all day. And marketers are so good at, uh, at capturing your attention that you effectively have a low bandwidth uh, brain chip already implanted in there. And so you're effectively already a brain chip cyborg. This could be one of those situations where even if it's not technically true, it's effectively true. And that's how we start acting. But um, the other thing that comes to mind is that you can see where this is going. Um, you can see that if uh, people come to see hive minders as literal NPCs, as people without souls or without any real physical existence in the world, they're just animated, um, that you can see where violence becomes more justified and, and we're trending towards a much more violent world. So I kind of think about some of those things as like, oh man, if, if you see a lot of that going on, it seems like uh, violence is just around the corner. I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, that's one of the many things that tells me that there's violence around the corner. Um, I mean, think about for what the last 50 years we've had what would be considered right-wing radicals firebombing abortion clinics and stuff. And they feel justified because they're going, yeah, you're murdering babies. Firebombing you is, is perfectly okay. Well, now we're going beyond abortion to we're castrating children because of wokeism where 
Uh, you have these NPC mothers are taking their their kids to drag shows and letting um, grown men give lap dances to toddlers and, and whatnot. Like, let me be clear. I am not endorsing violence against any of these events, but I am saying with no uncertainty that violence against these events is coming because you're going to have a whole lot of fathers whose brains just break and they go, you're not human beings doing this. Yeah, whether you're NPCs, whether you're soulless bodies, whether you're demons, whatever justification they're going to use, they're going to look at this and say, not a human being. I'm done. You did this to my kid. No more. And not just like no more because you did this to my kid. It's going to be anybody else's kid, too. They're going to you're going to see a lot of these um, divorced fathers who's who the wives are transitioning the kids, castrating the kids without their permission. These are going to be the, the first round of violence. And if they're not put down right away, they're going to inspire a lot more violence. Yeah. I, um, I use traffic as kind of um, a microcosm of, of civilization. So I, I watch how people are driving. I watch the decisions they're making. I watch what they're doing in their cars while they're driving. And I just kind of see that as, okay, that's how they're approaching the rest of their life uh, writ large. Um, and the, the fascinating thing or the daunting thing to me right now is <clears throat> I, I used to know, I could see the difference in how people were driving over years. So like five years ago, they were, they were driving very differently than 10 years ago. Uh, or, you know, one year ago, they were very, driving very differently than uh, two years ago, but it's accelerating. So now it's almost every time I drive, it it's probably on a weekly occurrence, I'm noticing a substantial difference in how people are driving. So to me, that means we're hurtling towards some sort of, some sort of snap somewhere. Something's got to break hard because I, when you, when you notice this kind of acceleration on this short of a frequency or this high of a frequency, this short of a wavelength, um, it's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. And it's, it's no one thing. It's the intersection of a dozen different factors coming in because people are getting more aggressive social media. And this is probably a series of podcasts for us to dive into, but social media is definitely making people more aggressive and more divided. And the TLDR is it's the very worst thing that's ever happened to women specifically. Social media has ruined their lives as a, as a group as a whole, but it's not like it's been any good for men either, but social media is one aspect of it. Um, the cities are so packed in, if you've ever gone to like New York or New Jersey, Boston, the people there are way more aggressive than in most other cities because they're really densely packed in there. The more people you have per square mile or whatever per capita, the more aggressive people become. Whereas when you got onto the farms and ranches, you know, these guys can't be, they're so laid back that they're, you almost see them as slugs and sloths because there's just nothing. Nothing gets them upset. Nothing gets them uh, really motivated and in a hurry because they got a nice, relaxed lifestyle. And it's like when you have, you know, a hundred thousand people per square mile versus one person per square mile, you get a whole different atmosphere for people. So that's another factor that's going into it. The news, the news media over the last hundred years has been perfectly cultivated to nothing but rage porn and fear baiting. So. You know, and that's what that's like three or four things I just mentioned. There's there's at least a dozen factors pushing people into this type of aggression. Um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you didn't have cars that could go 100 miles an hour. Now your standard sedan, four cylinders of sedan is going to get up to 80, 90 miles an hour. You drive a six or eight cylinder, you're getting over 100. So now you have these hyper aggressive people with more advanced technology driving like maniacs. You got cell phones that they can talk in and, and stay angry the whole time. It's it's a different world. It's definitely the intersection of all these, these factors. So on prior podcasts, we talk about how to keep your kids from getting enslaved, uh, smartphones by tablets and such. Um, but you just brought up an interesting point. Is there anything we can do at the family level about social media and its impact on women? Less is more. Um, it took me a couple of years, but at this point, my wife's use of social media is 98% business related. It's for our Wi-Fi business and what we had at the IRL business. Like once a week, she might check into Facebook to see if any family members have uh, posted something about a kid being born or whatever, but she's not on there daily anymore. Me, I, I use Twitter and TikTok strictly for um, um, business related stuff. Yeah. And that's it. I don't have a personal, um, 
I don't have personal social media. I don't use it on a personal basis. So, you know, it's hard. It's hard to just tell somebody that because you become addicted to it and it's hard to just tell them, oh, walk away from it. But you just got to little by little inch your family away from it, your, your wife or your husband and your kids. Don't give them a smartphone until they're like 16 at the earliest. Don't let them sit unsupervised with a tablet until they leave the house. That's, you know, they sound draconian, but you, know, you want your kid to be a winner or you want them to be an NPC. How were, how was your wife able to make that transition? Like, uh, did you help her along that process? Did she come to it all by herself? I definitely helped her along the process. Um, a lot of it was, a lot of it corresponded with me reading books uh, like uh, Loser Think by Scott Adams, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, books that help you think and discriminate uh, fiction versus reality and hoaxes and stuff. And as a result, she'd be like, she'd be reading Facebook posts, be like, hey, here's this. And I'll be like, is that true? And I start running it through these truth filters, as uh, Scott Adams calls it, his reality filters and truth filters. And I just start picking these things apart to the point where it became clear that Facebook was more noise than it was. And this is back, um, I don't know when he wrote that book. It was five or six years ago, something like that. But I, I was picking it apart back then. And slowly she was recognizing that she was getting no positive benefit from this. Um, as any man who's been married for more than a minute knows, you cannot just go up to your wife and say, that's bad, knock it off. That technique has never worked in 6,000 years of recorded history for any man, not once. Uh, no matter what the masculinity hustlers tell you, there is no amount of chest thumping over your wife that's going to get her to uh, actually obey. You have to lead her there on her own to see that it's doing more harm than good. And that's what I did with my wife. Little by little, I just kind of introduced her to the idea that these things were bad. And she got to those conclusions on her own with my nudging her in that direction. And now she's broken free of it. Yeah. And you can see exactly where I was going with that question. It's a, it's a delicate dance and um, I see lots of guys doing it wrong, either not, not recognizing the, um, the need to, to help their families out. And then on the other end, you know, chest thumping too much and, and then getting the opposite reaction because they resent your, your authority and your, um, and your abusing your authority. Uh, so uh, yeah, interesting points. Um, that's, that's about all I had on those topics, but uh, what else is on your mind? Well, I'll, I'll just add in, on that line of thought, um, like when I have a health or exercise related thing, I want to relate to my wife. I wait until bowtied heifer posts it. And then I show that to my wife because it's coming from a woman. I go, Oh, did you know this? If I post, if I show her something coming from a male fitness guy, it's, she's less likely to, um, to take it on the authority. But if it comes from a woman, it's like instant authority. So I just wait till she says something that I like her or some other female influencers. I'll wait till they say something that's relevant to, to whatever fitness or health thing at hand. And then I just hand my phone over and go, Hey, take a look at that. And she reads it and implements it. Like, I don't need the credit for this. I don't need to be able to say, Hey, I, I told you so. I just said, here, she's saying this. Have you heard of this? And boom, problem solved. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, reasons to be involved in the jungle, right? Especially really appreciate all the female accounts in the jungle who are, we're sharing these bits of wisdom that women might not otherwise be able to coordinate around. Right. Um, I have a, a, an additional side point, which is kind of the opposite way of learning, which is um, my wife's sister is super woke and she just has problem after problem after problem. And it just makes all of these things really obvious to my wife. So it's like um, it's uh, she gets you know, the, the positive influences from, you know, other conservative women or traditional women who are, who are doing really good things in the world. And then she also sees what could happen if she, if she weren't in that crowd. So I guess a little from both sides. Yeah. If you can learn how to think properly, then you can teach your wife how to think properly. And I mean, the reverse could be true as well, right? I mean, if, if for any female listener, if you learn how to think properly, you can teach your husband as well. But the point is most people don't know how to think. That's why you see all the binary thinker jokes on Twitter, because it's always all or nothing. It's one or the other. It's never... There's no nuance. So I'm constantly, um, I was constantly, when I learned how to nuance conversation, which I did have to learn, it wasn't something I was born with. Once I learned how to do it, I started teaching my wife and we'd get into some arguments about some social topic, not real arguments, right? Just disagreements on something. And I would say, you know, basically I'd lead her through the nuance process and tell her, you need to nuance this. Just because somebody said 
at, you know, something on, on Twitter or TikTok or whatever, or whatever blog, post, uh, podcast, you have to ask, are they talking 100%? Or are they saying, when they say women do X, are they talking 60%, 100%? Just because they don't specify doesn't mean it's all or nothing. So it's up to you to really navigate that and say, okay, when is what they're saying true and when isn't it true and, and whatnot? And we could probably do a whole separate podcast on just how to navigate away from binary thinking. But if once you learn it, it's your obligation to teach your spouse and your children. And you have to do so in a way that they understand it. Again, you don't just thump your chest in front of them and scream, you know, don't be a binary thinker. That's not going to work. So, um, but yeah, unless you have any other things on that, uh, I got something else to, to bring up. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so kind of going back to the beginning of this, when I was telling about the, the 1031 and uh, all that. So pretty much, I think I explained everything on how I screwed up the 1031 exchange, but what we're doing now is also, uh, relevant thought process because we did find another farm property. I think I mentioned that at the beginning of this episode. Um, so we made an offer uh, in our town for a farm property. And this is where the whole conversation about real estate is lifestyle, not investment comes into play. Because what we're doing is buying a farm property that happens to have a house on it, not a house with farm property. And there's a difference in those two statements because one to finance this, we have to get an agriculture loan that looks at the production value of the land. So that's a, that's a, that's a first factor coming into this. It is farmland with a house, but in today's, with the way today's markets are going, it's, um, you know, real estate is really, really a lifestyle choice. The market prices are going down. Interest rates are going up. Buying a commercial or farmland, you are going to have, one uh, to 2% higher interest rates than you will for residential, which is exactly what I'm looking at now. So I'm buying this farmland. I'm going to have a higher interest rate. So why am I doing this during this time? Well, it's because of the lifestyle and it's because it's productive land. Um, depending on when we close on the property, because this is going to be a couple month process, I may not be able to yield a crop this year simply because we may close during the, the seeding and time and all that. But next year or the first year I could produce a crop will yield. If it's a bad crop, it'll yield enough money to pay all the year's monthly payments. So to me, that tells me that this is already a good investment and that's based off of um, minimal irrigation in a drought year. I, I did the numbers for the, the, the worst possible circumstances and it still means I could pay the mortgage for the entire year off of one crop. If we have a good snow season, a good, um, cause we don't get rain where I'm at, we get snow and the snow is what gives us all of our water for irrigation. If we have a really heavy snowfall year, that means I get two, maybe two and a half, uh, crop rotations. That means I actually make money on the property itself just off of that before I bring any farm animals on any livestock on the property. So that's a big motivator in my decision to actually buy property right now, even with the interest rates being what they are. Yeah. Uh, great point. Um, I think it really, uh, also makes the point that, uh, as you said, you know, real estate is a lifestyle choice right now. Um, and, uh, and if real estate is a substantial portion of your personal net worth, um, you have to hold a substantial amount of cash just to carry and de-risk that asset. Uh, cash flow constraints destroy 90% of the value that people lose in real estate. Uh, cause it's, it's a big, slow-moving asset that's incredibly hard to coordinate with the other components of your life. So just know, you know, if you're if you're buying real estate, if it has a lot of, if if it's taking up a lot of your personal net worth, just know that you have to hold cash against it. Uh, the people that I see lose a lot of money in real estate um, uh, weren't the people who levered it up really big and held cash. It wasn't the people who bought in all cash. It was the people in the middle. They had some kind of loan. And then they didn't hold enough cash against it to de-risk the the fixed uh, charge payments and such. So and and the carrying costs, right? There's going to be times when you have to put money into that asset to make it usable. And if you don't have the money, it can just fall apart. I've watched, oh my gosh, I watched really big, quote unquote, sophisticated New York private equity firms absolutely lose their ass on real estate because they mismanage the cash flows. Uh, for example, one of them lent against a, a, a big box retailer um, in in a big building and thought that that retailer was a good credit. And so they're, they're effectively just making a, 
you know, a loan that was against the credit risk of a, of a major company. And so they were well covered. Well, it turns out that company was going bankrupt pretty quick and they blew out of that asset. And then uh, the owner, the, the private equity firm didn't have the cash flow to turn that asset over to another user. And so they lost, uh, gosh, $40 million off a $60 million asset before they could turn it. Uh, just, just because, you know, they could have easily invested a million or two in it and turn it around just fine and not really lost much over maybe say a year's lost rent payments. But that's just an extreme example of if you're going to hold real estate, you have to accommodate for a whole bunch of unforeseen circumstances, both on servicing the debt and on whether you can generate cash flow from that asset. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned some, some high dollar numbers there, but just at my level, the user level, these are the kind of the thought process I went through was one, if the farmland doesn't make any money, right? Like this next year, like I said, I may not be able to get to close this in time to the seed to do all the seeding and irrigation properly. So I may not get a crop this year. We can pay the mortgage just off of our Wi-Fi money. No problem. So right out the gate, we're doing fine. If we just sit there and stare at this land without growing anything or putting any livestock on it, we're still fine financially. So the fact that we can make money on it and the property can be self-sustaining is a huge selling point, especially given the current real estate conditions. So we can afford it, no problem. And we're looking at making money off of it regardless. So that's that was the first factor going in. The next thing that we're currently looking at is the house we're living in now, whether we rent it or sell it after we move on to this new property. Because the the house we're in, uh, we bought it when the, the interest rates were down. We got like a two and a half percent interest rate on this place. So it's a potentially huge inflation hedge because the, the, there's practically no interest on the place. However, we are in a state where the rental market is, um, the, the rental laws are terrible. If we get a renter who moves into this place and says, you know what, I'm not paying, it's going to be minimal in six months before we get them out. Um, that's just the type of state we live in. So now I have to take them a consideration of the, the financials on this, not just, oh, well, the interest rate's two and a half percent. It's how many months per year am I likely to not be paying money on this? Am I going to be making the, the payment myself? And what does that mean for an inflation hedge? If you're not renting, if you're not truly renting the property, then is your inflation hedge really an inflation hedge if you're making the mortgage payment while you have a deadbeat in there cooking meth or you know drawing on the walls or whatever the hell they're doing? So all of that kind of factors in as well. It's like, we've got this great interest rate on it. What could be an investment property, but is it really, does the math actually work out when you take reality into consideration? You know, it's not just numbers on a spreadsheet and interest rates. There's, there's reality. There's people are assholes and the law is against you. So this is a huge, huge uh, counterpoint that we have to consider before we decide what to do with the, the house we're currently in. So then what are you thinking you're going to do? At the moment, I'm leaning towards just selling it and not being burdened with the problem. Um, now, I've got a couple of months to decide, and I'm, I'm digging into more options. Like I looked into the Airbnb market in our area, and I know we've trash-talked Airbnb a lot, but I looked into it because we do have a um, constant stream of traveling nurses and doctors who come in, and the idea is there that I could, I could potentially just make this an Airbnb to them. But then I looked at the next six months of Airbnbs in our town, and there's at least a dozen houses that are pretty much wide open, barely any barely any days reserved in the next six months. Uh, and especially the next 30 days, I could take my pick of any of these places. And they're, they're rated as super hosts and whatnot. And I'm looking at it going, all right, well, that kind of bursts the bubble on Airbnb as an option because there's um, it's just flooded with potential. They, our area is flooded with potential Airbnb hosts. And there's no there's not as many doctors and traveling nurses as I thought there were. So that option's not looking viable. I really have to dig into the um, renter laws. And even this may be one of the things where I look at the local real estate companies who also do uh, property management to see if they have a process in place. Uh, maybe one of the times where it's worth using them versus doing it myself, both because of time constraints, but they may have a process in place and contracts that are solid enough that they can get a renter out fast if they stop uh, paying and become a deadbeat. So that's the next option. If if I can minimize my risk down to basically one mortgage payment a year, 
I'll consider renting it, even if all I'm doing is breaking even, because in the next five, six years, I'll start making a profit, potentially huge, if the um, real estate market rebounds, the rental market and inflation all take off. It could be a very good inflation hedge. But if I could be potentially stuck with a deadbeat renter for six months or more, no interest rate is worth keeping uh, keeping for that kind of liability, in my opinion. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I, uh, even you know, five years ago, uh, ten years ago, when when renters were much higher quality and weren't defaulting so much, and and the rules weren't so skewed against landlords, I even then I was like, I, I have zero interest in being a landlord ever again. Um, and so whenever I, whenever I buy something now, I, I don't even include as an option renting it out just so I don't put myself in a situation where I have to rent it out. It was just such a nightmare. I, I hated it. There are people who are, who are particularly good at it. I mean, um, I, I don't know if maybe their, their strategy is to underprice and then they just get a whole bunch of renders and then choose the cream of the crop. Um, but there's just so much adverse selection in the, in the renting, renting pool, uh, or the pool of, of people who rent, uh, that it's just, uh, it's just a matter of time until you get somebody who has, you know, a barn animal in the house and it shits all over the place. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I would just encourage people to, um, to think not just as you said about, um, you know, your ability to cash flow that asset and what the relevant local laws are, but also look forward. Uh, I think, as people find it harder and harder to survive economically, uh, it sure seems like the people who are going to get pinched are the landlords, right? Um, you have the asset to to share as far as the government's concerned, and so they're they're who you're going to go for. Or they're who you're who they're going to go at go, uh, to fill that gap, right? The renter can't pay. The government knows you have an have an asset. They're going to force you to make it available. Um, so there could be a lot more of that just to keep in mind for the future, but this kind of analysis is exactly what people should be doing before they make these, these big important decisions that are, you know, committing them to at least a year or two of an asset. So I'd, I'd say great job. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like even look back at COVID when, um, you know, they locked everybody down and then that very next thing was like, Hey, you know, you can't, uh, foreclose on the house if they don't make the mortgage payment and you can't kick somebody out if they don't make the rent payment. Well, that put the land, the, the homeowners, the rental owners on the, um, the hook for the mortgage payment still. That took a while to get sorted out. And then if we're roll, actually rolling into a period of high inflation or uh, recession of some kind, which, I mean, we've been going to have these things for like two years now. They've been screaming recessions around the corner. But if it truly is around the corner, do you want to be holding the rental properties? as every, you know, Who's going to be the first people to lose their jobs? The renters. Histor- it was if they had a better paying, more secure job, they'd, they'd have bought a house. So there's a re- they're a renter for a reason, likely. And they're probably going to be the first ones to lose their jobs, which means that you are now not able to make the payments or um, get your rental to make the mortgage payment. And again, what is the local law to kick them out? Is your state going to put in some uh, forgiveness in things that where you can't kick them out until after whatever, three, six, nine months because of a recession condition? You don't know what's around the corner. Are you willing to take the risk and what is the likelihood of that risk? So that's, those are the things weighing on my mind. And I, like I said, I got about two months to figure this out. That's plenty enough time for me to make a decision. And, you know, you're never, in my view, you're never wrong for offloading debt. You might be leaving money on the table. You might be, you know, screwing up a potential investment and losing upside, but you've, you've lost the risk. You know, it's not maybe not the best decision you can make, but it's not necessarily the wrong decision. It's it's like Thomas Sowell says: there's just trade offs. It's just trade offs. You know, you may be trading off uh, potentially high risk for uh, just for some stability, even though you are losing that upside income. I've made those decisions before. Sometimes they've they've turned out to be the right decision because something bad wound up happening. Other times, I missed out on money, such as life. Yeah. And I mean, if you have good inflation protections, very rarely the case that, uh, um, that retiring debt or paying off debt is increasing your risk. <laughs> so yeah, great point. Um, but, uh, I, I think generally people should look at, uh, what are the, what are the asset classes that the government can most easily get their hands on or force you to, you know, share with the looters and, and moochers. Uh, and one of them is real estate, particularly residential real estate. Um, the others are, you know, retirement accounts or any sort of bank account or anything directly related to the banking system. Um, so just keep that in mind. 
if you have farmland and you're able to sell the you know the produce of that farmland locally, um, I'd say you're pretty well. Yeah, and that's here's the other thing about this property I didn't mention is that um, it is literally across the street from my wife's uncle and her cousins who are um, also in the farming business. So I don't need to make any investment into equipment. And I don't need to, right out the gate, I don't even need to go find customers on my own. I could just tag on to what they're doing and essentially pay them in produce. They get, I've got access to their equipment and I don't necessarily need to hand them cash. It's just here. You know, we'll use your equipment on my land. You take everything, sell it to your customers and you know, just give me the remains of the money. So right out the gate, I'm actually in a really good position for help and support and equipment. Yep. Perfect example of the difference in perspective between an operator, an owner operator and say a private equity fund, right? A private equity fund just looks at the asset. They run some calculations on a spreadsheet and they're like, this is a good deal or this is not a good deal. An operator looks at the asset and says, what are all the particulars? How can I use each one of those things and monetize them? And what's unique about my situation that allows me to do that? And so I think you just, you, yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly why it really matters to have owner operators owning property because they know how to maximize its value and, and don't just look at it as a, you know, a commodity, just like every other asset that could be bought or sold. Yeah. Well, and here's a non-financial consideration too. Um, you know, when I started into this, this farming uh, business, my wife's question to me has always been, if we want to go on vacation, who's feeding the animals, who's watering the animals, who's watering the ground, who's doing this stuff. And, you know, for the last year uh, and a half, we've, we've made it happen either by, um, her, her father will, will take care of some of it. Or if me and her father go somewhere, her, my wife or her mother will do it. But the four of us have not been able to travel together. Um, and this has been on my wife's mind is like, you know, we want to do family vacations. We want to do this stuff. Well, that, that question just got solved. It's like your cousin comes across, feeds the animals, puts some water in a bucket and goes back, back to his business. And in return, when he wants to travel, I go across the street and I do the same for him. So it's a win-win for everybody. And, it's not a financial consideration, but it's a lifestyle consideration. And it's a good point. My wife was bringing up. She's like, you want to get involved in this, but how, how's this going to affect our travel, our vacation, our family, our doing stuff? Like you got to think that stuff through. And, you know, it was a good point. And now the question just got answered simply by location. Yeah, totally agree. And, and great, great situation. Well, that's about all I have for this episode. So unless there's anything you want to add, any tangents that you thought of stuff we talked about, I think we can wrap this one up. Oh man, I've got tangents for years, but uh, let's let's not put that kind of punishment on everybody. All right. Well then, in that case, um, thank you all for listening. Thanks for getting all the way to the end of this. You can reach us on Twitter at Wi-Fi Pioneers, Wi-Fi underscore Pioneers. Uh, we definitely want to, want your feedback. Feel free to message us, DM us, respond to any of the video clips I put out, and you know, tell me you agree, you disagree, that you you know things you want us to get more into. We definitely want to hear from you. So. At that, guys, have a good weekend. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourself.